Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans appear. 20,000. Agricultural revolution. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm your host, Mike Osborne. Our interview today is with Dr. David Greenspoon, and I'm joined in studio right now with Leslie Chang. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How was your New Year's? <laughs> it was okay. I got sick. So. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm the only one that had a good New Year's. I went down to uh, the Rose Bowl. Which oh, yeah. Was, How was that? It was a blast. Um, I bet. It's always, I still can't believe Stanford has a good football team. <laughs> Since I know. When are nerds good at football? But nerd they're awesome. Nation. Yeah, 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 nerd nation. I'm totally in on that. Too. I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so Miles Trayer did the interview with Dr. Grinspoon, so we're going to give him a call right now. Hello. Hey, Miles. Miles. Hey, how's it going? Good. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Are you sick like Leslie? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Two out of three. <laughs> Two out of three, great. Uh, well, I'm glad we're calling you on the phone then, so hopefully I won't get this, whatever the hell it is you guys have. Um, so, Miles, you did the interview with Dr. David Grinspoon, correct? That's right, yeah. So I want to ask you why you wanted to interview him, but even more broadly, I wanted to ask you, why, why do you keep going you know, off-planet with these interviews? Why you, <laughs> what, what is it about the people who are studying space that uh, is so relevant to the Anthropocene? Well... I mean, for my whole life, I've always been sort of a big sci-fi geek. You know, I, I really love the idea of, oh, let's leave Earth, let's go off-planet and sort of learn more about the solar system, about the universe. And the more that I actually began to study Earth science and solar system science and planetary science, the more it was kind of an actual future. You know, you can actually do this for a living. <laughs> And I There's a career in this. Yeah, yeah. Hey, this I could great. be an adult doing this. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and you know, the, the classic example of that, I think, of someone who really inspired a lot of people to study science and planetary science and the solar system was Carl Sagan, who, if our listeners don't know... Leslie, Sagan, Leslie doesn't know who Carl Sagan is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. So, you know, Carl Sagan was a planetary uh, scientist, and he 
he was one of the premier science communicators out there, and he was largely credited as being the first guy to bring science into the mainstream, to make it fun, to make it something that the public could really, really get interested in. And he did it largely through this show that he made, which is called Cosmos. And it's an incredible show, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, you have to see it. And the reason that I also bring up Carl Sagan is not only is he a, a hero of mine, but he actually knew David when they were growing up. They were friends. Oh, cool. And they get into that in the interview, and it, it's kind of funny. But, you know, what Carl Sagan did was he took people off planet, you know, like I said, and you sort of turn the camera around and look back at Earth and sort of see what you can learn. So part of the reason that you wanted to interview Grinspoon was to reduce your degrees of separation to Carl Sagan? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's I just accurate. trying to get one step closer. <laughs> Aren't awesome. they rebooting Cosmos? Yeah, they are. They are, yeah. Oh, sweet. All right, so, Miles, I was curious, uh, what did you get out of this interview? Well, the most interesting thing is that Earth and Venus, studying the Earth and studying Venus, it's basically a twin study. Venus, early on in its history, was very much like Earth. And it experienced this thing called a runaway greenhouse, which David explains in the interview. But it's basically the idea that we can look at the Earth now and we can actually learn a lot about sort of an extreme example of what might happen to an Earth-like planet by just looking, you know, cosmically just down the road at Venus, <laughs> just nice. sort of right next door. And it's really interesting because the physics is physics everywhere. Chemistry is chemistry everywhere. And so if we look at Venus, the processes that are going on there are the processes that are going on on Earth. Now, granted, they're just going differently because there's, again, this runaway greenhouse. But it's a really interesting, as David says, a twin study. Very cool. Awesome. Well, let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Miles, and today I'm talking with Dr. David Grinspoon, the recently inaugurally appointed NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology. David Grinspoon, thanks for talking with me today. Oh, thanks for having me here. So I wanted to begin with the Anthropocene. And as someone who primarily studies processes on other planets, what does that term mean to you? I'm interested in the Anthropocene as an astrobiologist because I see it as perhaps an important moment in planetary history and a branching point in the relationship between the planet and the life of the planet. And astrobiology for me is about the relationship between planets and life anywhere in the universe. And so if something's happening that's altering that relationship, which I believe it is, then to me that's a, a, an event or a, a moment of astrobiological significance. One of the major uh, markers, if you will, of, of the Anthropocene is climate change. Where did the concept of climate change first sort of cross your path? I, I heard a rumor it involved a hero of mine, Carl Sagan. Well, yeah. Carl Sagan has been an important person in, in my life uh, in a number of ways, and personally and professionally. I knew, I knew him as a kid growing up, actually. He and my parents and were good friends and sort of in the same circles. And so when I was a kid, he was around, around a lot, and he was Uncle Carl, actually. <laughs> so, so that's how I first, first knew him. Um, and, uh, you know, it's probably not a coincidence that I got very inspired to go into space science. Uh, it was a pretty exciting time and. Uh, pretty exciting environment to be in. And, uh, but, but he is also the first person I heard really talk about climate change and global warming. And 
back in the um, in the eighties, he was talking about global warming and uh, how it related Earth to our studies of other planets. Uh, because, I mean, and it really makes sense because, in a uh, very basic sense, climate is a problem. I think of it as a problem of planetary physics in its most simplest form: the radiation budget coming into a planet from its star, the radi- radiation budget leaving the planet, and how that balance is affected by the atmosphere and other planetary processes. So it makes sense to me that planetary scientists would be the people talking about this. I know that a lot of your work has been on Venus with its runaway greenhouse effect. What can Venus sort of teach us about the Anthropocene here on Earth? Well, in a general sense, looking at the other planets allows us to abstract the question of climate and sort of see it from a different way and in a sense see the earth from the outside in and in a more specific sense venus is an extreme case of a greenhouse planet and the the thing that makes that more remarkable is how earth-like venus is in so many ways it really is earth's twin it's remarkable the similarity between the two planets they're almost exactly the same size. Venus just slightly smaller. And Venus is the closest planet in proximity to us in the universe. And they seem to be made out of basically the same stuff, very similar densities, and have probably very similar origins and early histories. And yet they evolved in this radically different direction in terms of their surface environments and and their climate. So it's almost as if you had a twin study. You take these identical twins and give them different experiences in life and see how they grow up. It's the closest thing we'll ever have, I think, to a almost controlled experiment of, you know, we don't get to do controlled experiments in planetary evolution and say, well, wouldn't, you know, let's vary this factor and go go back five billion years and see if we're right about our theory. We, We can't do that kind of science. But with Venus, we almost get an example of another Earth that evolved in a slightly different location with more sunlight, changed its climate balance, and then we get to see what happened. And so it, uh, it's almost a parable of what could happen to an Earth-like planet. So what, what happened on, on Venus so that it's now not so much the twin of Earth anymore? Well, Venus experienced what we call the runaway greenhouse. Picture a planet that would probably started out like Earth. Move one of them, Venus. 30% closer to the sun. And then when it was young, it was probably cool enough on the surface to have liquid waters, as the uh, liquid oceans, as the Earth does today, because the sun was cooler. We know the sun was a lot cooler when, when it was young. And then as the sun warmed up, as, as stars like our sun do, it crossed some threshold where the ocean could no longer be stable on the surface. And the oceans basically essentially boil, and then all that water, instead of being on the surface is in the atmosphere where it's vulnerable to being stripped away into space and lost through the solar wind and other processes and the water gets lost and then that breaks the natural climate thermostat of the planet earth has this natural climate thermostat where co2 is drawn down by by chemical weathering and so the the co2 released by volcanoes doesn't build up in the atmosphere too much in the long run it gets regulated by CO2 being drawn down. But on a planet with no water, that part of the thermostat breaks. You can't have that chemical weathering. CO2 stays in the atmosphere, and the thermostat kind of gets pegged in the red zone. 
so that that whole process of that runaway greenhouse i mean we don't have a runaway greenhouse here on earth but that those processes aren't unique to venus so why is it that venus has this runaway greenhouse what what, what allowed earth to not become you know sulfuric acid clouds in a 900 degree surface temperature well it, exactly i mean it's the exact same physics and that's what's kind of cool about this comparative planetology approach is that we're looking at the same laws of physics and we can run the same models and if our models are any good they should work for earth and other planets it's kind of important to understand why a similar planet to the earth and in, in so many bulk qualities would behave so differently and interestingly the answer to why venus doesn't have plate tectonics today most likely has to do with what we've just been discussing the loss of water it's probably the case that in the long run the climate change when it desiccated venus change the interior qualities because it turns out that plate tectonics depends on having oceans on a planet. So plate tectonics on Earth in the long run seems to be lubricated by the presence of water. So if you take an Earth-like uh, tectonic interior model and let it run and then dry it out, plate tectonics stops. So it may actually be, uh, you were asking about um, how Venus's climate thermostat might have functioned without plate tectonics, but it may be the other way around, that when the climate system stopped functioning, that also broke the plate tectonic system of Venus. So this is one of the other reasons why comparative planetology is so valuable because it, it illuminates things for us. We might not have suspected the ways that the interior dynamics of the Earth are so dependent on the ocean and the surface conditions until we start looking at another planet like Venus and say, well, why isn't it doing this plate tectonic thing that Earth does so flagrantly? And it turns out it may have to do ultimately with climate change on Venus and the effects of that eventually sort of propagating into the interior and changing the whole solid planet, not just the surface. I don't think that anybody would imagine Earth becoming Venus in the next 50 years. I mean, that's clearly not realistic. But is that perhaps the cautionary tale of Venus? Like, If you continue to push the system more and more out of whack, this might happen. Yeah, I mean, on the level of almost like a fable of what really can happen to an earth-like planet venus is an extreme you know it's it's a warning sign it's like you know the body hanging at the entrance of town saying you know be careful that bad things can happen or whatever um in reality like you say we're not going to push earth to be like venus in 50 years but it does remind us that uh, i mean venus was a planet that once had an earth-like climate so it reminds us that the stability of such an entity cannot be taken for granted but I think the real value of studying Venus in a more pragmatic sense for Earth climate understanding is that, not, not that, that it, it shows us that, oh, this might happen to our planet in 50 or 100 years, but that it gives us another example of the way the climate physics are playing out. And it gives us a laboratory to see if we really understand atmosphere and climate as well as we think we do. I mean, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a terrifying analog to sort of look at. It's, it's very similar to Earth in a lot of ways, and yet it sort of hit this moment in time, and everything just started to run away from it. And a lot of scientists talk about the Earth now in terms of tipping points. Whenever I hear the tipping points argument, I'm always reminded of George Carlin making the joke, and he says, "Whatever we do, the Earth is gonna be fine. We're screwed." I think that George is, uh, you know, as always, <laughs> very wise, uh, as well as being very funny. And um, 
that's absolutely right. People misplace and talk about, oh, let's take care of the earth, and they're concerned about the earth, but it's it's really ourselves we need to be worried about, and, and the other species we're taking with us. One of the reasons, uh, in, in a general sense, as an astrobiologist, I'm interested in, in thinking about the Anthropocene is it's a huge perturbation to the earth system, and arguably this is the newest kind of catastrophe. And so I'm trying to look at it in that context. Uh, how, how does it rate as a catastrophe? How, how, how do we as change agents sort of stack up to the major catastrophic forces that have affected not just Earth, but planets in the solar system? And I mean, it's also interesting for astrobiology too, um, because thinking about what may happen to other planets with life in the universe, and we look at the different things that have happened to Earth and its history, and we try to apply them to uh, possible habitability elsewhere. Well, look at what's happening to the Earth now. Might that ever happen to other planets? And how would that look to us? How would we observe that? And what are the implications for the long-term survival of life elsewhere in the universe? Mars has certainly been in the news a lot lately. Can we learn anything from Mars about you know, the sort of Anthropocene concept on Earth? Well, again, Mars is a place that started off more Earth-like, almost certainly. We see a huge amount of evidence that Mars had liquid water on its surface early on, and the major results from Curiosity early in its mission uh, confirm that. So it presents a mystery because climate models don't do too good a job of of telling us why Mars should have been more Earth-like early on. It's a, it's a, it's a big problem. People have tried all kinds of things. Let's, and, and, it, and it involves a lot of the same physics that, that, that uh, we use in understanding what's happening with Earth now. You, you pump up the CO2, you see how the temperature changes, which is you know one of the basic exercises we're really trying to do a good job of now. Well, we're trying to do the same thing for early Mars because we want to understand why the climate changed there, sort of in reverse of what's happening here. But, but again, it's another way to stretch our you know, those muscles with which we uh, understand climate. I think that when a lot of people think about the Anthropocene, they sort of picture Earth sort of transforming into a Martian-like surface, you know, just barren of all life, anything like that. I don't think we're approaching that, but I don't think that that image is altogether wrong. Well, no, especially if you look at uh, more regionally in, in desertification. I mean, the, the, there'll certainly be more, more Mars-like places on Earth than there are now, uh, and we can predict that without saying that we're going to turn the whole planet Mars-like. You know, there's, there's also an interesting sort of historical um, resonance in that the history of uh, people being fascinated in the possibility of life and even civilization on Mars, of course, uh, goes way back. And there was the famous case of Percival Lowell, uh, who... Um, you know, discovered, and I'm making <laughs> air quotes, <laughs> air quotes, <laughs> when I say discovered, canals on Mars around uh, the turn of the last century, and was such a persuasive, charismatic, you know, Carl Sagan type figure, a science communicator, um, that he managed to convince a large part of of um, the world that, that there really were canals on Mars, both the scientific community and the public at large took this seriously. And he had this whole scenario that involved a dying civilization on Mars, valiantly trying to save their planet. And the point of the canals was that climate was changing on Mars and it was drying out. And so the polar caps, which he assumed were water, they knew about the polar caps, but they didn't know they were mostly CO2, uh, which he assumed were water. The canals were this 
big planetary, uh, basically, you know, geoengineering or Marso engineering <laughs> project um, to uh, transport water from the, the melting poles to the more equatorial regions uh, so they could grow vegetation. So uh, the idea was that this civilization was suffering under climate change on Mars and the canals were actually evidence of them trying to survive in, in the face of that. So uh, that's sort of the background that informs, uh, you know, sort of the, the more modern views of Mars where in fact, okay, there aren't canals. Uh, it turns out that was just a figment of um, bad optics and a lot of imagination, <laughs> but there are these dried up river channels that do indicate a, uh, a sort of dying planet, if you will, maybe not a civilization dying out, but possibly a biosphere dying out at one point. I, I saw a, a talk that you gave earlier this year and you were talking about, uh, you were talking about the Anthropocene, you were talking about in the context of places like Venus and Mars, similar to what we're doing now. And you mentioned in the talk that in the Anthropocene, we're going to have to understand climate which you've mentioned earlier with Venus, you know, the climate models have to work well. But to move beyond the Anthropocene, we're going to have to be able to control climate. And I was wondering if you could maybe expand on that. Well, yeah, I mean, in the long run, we have some challenges. <laughs> <laughs> Our most immediate challenge is to stop inadvertently messing with the Earth in a way that could be self-destructive. I think we've come to this point where whether we like it or not, we have to kind of learn to be planetary managers. And, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of these sort of um, quick fix geoengineering schemes, but I am a fan of understanding how in the long run we would take care of Earth's climate. But the longer term challenge is understanding how the Earth naturally changes and figuring out when we want to intervene in that. And I think in the long run, we will have to. Uh, now, you used an interesting phrase that I'd love to come back to, which is that you said something about after the Anthropocene. So I'm intrigued by that thought that there will be an after the Anthropocene, because what is the Anthropocene? Is it an event? Is it an era or an epoch? Or is it a transition in the life of the planet? I've seen it referred to in the literature as, as the Anthropocene event, and certainly the burning of fossil fuels is an event that won't last long. It can't. They're finite. I've seen it referred to as a as sort of an epoch or an era um, that implies it will have not just a beginning but an end. Um, but then if we're really going to make this transition that I think we should, that I think we're, we're challenged to now, that we need to, to being this sort of wiser species that can handle itself on a global level and ultimately make decisions about how to manage the planet, then I think it's a transition in the sense that the origin of life or the, or the Cambrian explosion were transitions. In other words, it has a before and an after which mark different phases, different phases in the history of the planet. And um, in a way, I think that's a hopeful view. Um, so in that view, maybe we're in some sort of proto-Anthropocene now, where we really have not become that species that will take care of the planet. We're in this like um, necessarily brief conflagration of resource use and planetary change. And then we'll either transition into this more stable kind of influence on the planet, or we won't. We'll go away and something else will come along. I wanted to, to wrap up, and to me, the Anthropocene is very much about placing humans in the context of Earth. And 
what's always intrigued me about astronomy and astrobiology is about placing the Earth in the context of the cosmos and everything else. Um, I'm wondering, this is sort of a weird question, for yourself, walk me through the linkages of you know, the human scales to planetary scales to sort of cosmic scales. Well, th so the Anthropocene is certainly about the relationship between humans and Earth. But to me, it's also about the relationship between humans and the cosmos because I think that, as I've mentioned, I think we're at a planetary transition point. And I think that the kind of transition we are at must be playing out on other planets, must have played out on other planets elsewhere in the universe. In other words, if you believe there's life elsewhere, and I do, and you believe that sometimes that life evolves to more complex and even cognitive forms, which I do, then at some point the beings on those other planets will face the kind of choices we're facing now because you know, life inevitably multiplies and becomes a planetary factor. It's just one of the properties of life. And I think that life with technology will go through this phase where it's becoming more powerful, it can do more things, it does more things because, kind of because it can. It, that's, you know, sort of behaving as, as bacteria. <laughs> you know, you multiply and you, if you, if you uh, evolve some powerful capacity, you do more of it. And then it will reach the point where that starts to have global consequences. And once it reaches that point, it will be faced with exactly the same kinds of choices we're being faced with now. So I think you can abstract what's happening here on Earth to something that will happen inevitably on a certain class of planets in the universe. And so, therefore, the question of how we are going to respond to these challenges is directly related to the question of how much life, how much intelligent life is there out there and what state is it in. Uh, it's, I think we're at a branching point that's one of the branching points that life will reach elsewhere in the universe. And that hopefully I think that this perspective and seeing us at that way can help us look back at ourselves from this, uh, even as a thought experiment, from this more cosmically informed viewpoint and see how that perspective illuminates the choices that we have. You know, we really are this planetary entity. Uh, and we're not used to thinking of ourselves that way. Well, David Grinspoon, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Sure, yeah, this has been really fun. So that last point that David Grinspoon made about the Anthropocene playing out on other planets, did, did you understand what that was about? <laughs> Yeah, I think the first time we listened to that interview, none of us really got what he was talking about. But I think what he's getting at is this idea of planetary decisions. Planetary decisions. Miles, what's your take on this? Well, I agree with Leslie. You know, if, if you follow David's logic, and the universe is huge, and it's very old, there's probably life out there, you know, somewhere else in the universe. Totally. Yeah. And if you accept that, then there's probably intelligent life somewhere in the universe. There's got to be another species that sort of followed the same evolutionary trajectory that humans did. Not the same, but maybe a similar one. And if you accept that, then these intelligent species of the planet, whatever, you know, let's call it Xanadu, uh, <laughs> if, if you accept that those species are out there, then they've probably manipulated their environment in many of the same ways that we have. So they're forced to sort of make those same big planetary decisions. 
Okay, so basically the idea is that we accept that the universe is big, so that there's got to be intelligent life out there somewhere. And if that's the case, if it's anything like humans or humanity, then they've reached a similar point where they're having such an effect on their surroundings, on their environment, that they have also reached a point at Xanadu, nice citizen cane drop, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Xanadu or Xanadutians <laughs> have also gotten to this point where they actually have to take the idea of planetary decisions realistically. Like they have to actually consider that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what David was talking about in sort of a more philosophical, sort of broader way was actually that viewing the Anthropocene from the planetary point of view sort of abstracts the decisions we're making on this planet and sort of links us to the Xanadutians and the other, you know, societies that are out there in the universe. And I think it's kind of a, it's a comforting thought in a lot of ways. Well, cool. Good interview. And uh, I guess let's keep our eyes at the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Generation Anthropocene. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Maxine Luckett for all of their behind-the-scenes work. Special thanks to Pam Matson, the Dean of Stanford School of Earth Sciences. And a very special thanks to Maserati for letting us use their song, Monoliths. We also want to thank KZSU Stanford 90.1, where most, but not all, of our interviews are recorded. You can find past episodes on our website, anthropocene.stanford.edu, where you can also submit a story idea of your own. Follow our conversation on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene, or like us on Facebook. I'm Mike Osborne. I'm Miles Traer. And I'm Leslie Chang. History is accelerating, and you're a part of it too. Welcome to our new geologic age.